a pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, Dr. John Pauline. He's a member of the church here, and he and his family attend regularly, Pamela, his wife, and children Joel, Tammy, and Kimberly. I think Joel and Pamela are here today. All right. Um, I've known Dr. Pauline for a long time as a scholar in religious studies. Uh, through our national associations and scholarly meetings and so on, but only recently did he become my boss down at Loma Linda University in the uh, School of Religion. He's the dean there, and it's been a pleasure to work with him and for him. One of the things I appreciate him most, appreciate about him most, is that he's a New Yorker. Uh, with New Yorkers, you generally know where you stand. Things are clear with New Yorkers, but he's not a rude New York person. He's a fine-tuned New Yorker, and uh, we really appreciate that about him, uh, particularly as an Alaskan, uh, I appreciate uh, that about him. He has a long publishing record, 19 books and hundreds of articles. His, his uh, resume or his curriculum vitae, 24 pages uh, just to start things out. And one of the things about his work is that he does truly focus his attention on trying to help us understand things, uh, the way things are in Scripture, and the way we have to wrestle with life today. Uh, he started this progression when he moved away from New York. He stopped in Michigan for a while. He's finally reached the promised land. <laughs> Let's welcome him here to our pulpit. Speaking of the promised land, I learned yesterday that your governor is even looking for a better place. But uh, this is a good place, and we're delighted to be here, be part of this church family, and I'm delighted to be here today. Uh, it's kind of exciting. Let's see, one more. That should do it. It's kind of exciting to be the fifth in a series, and the other four are really, you know, big people, people who... Uh, Anyway, uh, the interesting thing about it here is we, we've had four speakers, and each of them are, you know, renowned in their own field and so forth, and we're all talking about the same topic, and we're not talking to each other. Now, that's scary if you're number five, because there's always the chance that at the end of the month, everything there is to be said has been said. And uh, one thing I'm really grateful for is that uh, the first four have all said things that I'm comfortable with. I liked what everybody said, but none of them have said what I'm going to say. So that came out about as good as it can come out, I think, uh, from that perspective. Anyway, whenever we talk about the remnant, my topic this morning is the open remnant. It always brings us back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. So if you have a Bible handy, uh, just turn with me to Revelation 12, 17, and uh, we'll have a look at that text to begin with. Revelation 12:17 says the dragon was angry with a woman and he went away to make war with the remnant of her seed those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus so in the book of revelation it projects down to the end of time and it says there will be a group at the end of time called the remnant and that at the end of time, this group would seize upon a mission, a unique and special mission of God. And uh, that mission 
would be very, very important to the plan God has for the world. How, how are we doing up there? Keep going. They're Keep going there. They'll think about it. Okay, good. So the question arises then, who is this remnant? I mean, if, you know, if we're living at the end of time, and I think most people today feel that way, even if they aren't in the church, if you're living toward the end of earth's history, who is that remnant? Who, what is that group that Revelation is putting forth? And if you've been an Adventist for very long, you've probably heard the suggestion that it is the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its institution, its people, its ideas, and so forth. Now, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, you're sitting here listening to that, you're probably saying, what's up with that? I mean, uh, you guys think you're the only ones that know Jesus? Or, you know, it, it, it doesn't always have the, the ring, maybe, that, uh, that we would like to think. And even more and more, I think, of the younger generation among Adventists are saying, I don't know, it sounds a little bit uh, on the arrogant side or something, I, you know. Um, and so a number of us uh, have begun studying. So let's go back to the Bible. Let's have a second look at what the Bible says on the subject. Because, you know, uh, you can declare on the biblical meaning of something, and yet when you apply it to today's world, sometimes... Uh, uh, you can change your mind, or sometimes you begin to look at it differently when you come back to the text uh, once again. Anyway, so uh, a number of folk uh, in the General Conference has a committee called the Biblical Research Institute Committee, and they've begun studying uh, in some depth what's going on with the remnant, and uh, so we've uh, made some progress here. So I, the good news is I'm going to share with you something that may be new to you, at least uh, uh, books haven't been published yet, articles haven't been published yet, and uh, yet these are not things that uh, just came to me, but it's been part of a group process and a group wrestling with the issue. And you're kind of going to have to take a little bit by faith here, because I don't have time to run you through all these things, but uh, we could spend uh, hours and hours on some of it. Anyway, the remnant in the book of Revelation comes at the end of earth's history, it's at the close of Daniel's time prophecies. That's a whole other subject that uh, we could talk about for hours. They possess a visionary prophetic gift among themselves. In other words, John, as he's looking forward from the book of Revelation, he sees the idea that there's going to be someone like him or even people like him that will have a gift of a visions from God and guidance from God at the end of time. One other thing is this remnant would be the object of worldwide attention. And finally, it would have a message of worldwide significance. In other words, when this remnant of revelation comes, everybody's going to be talking about it. It'll be on CNN, you know. Everybody from Rush to Howard Stern is going to be taking interviews about what this remnant is all about. And you ask the question, all right? Is the remnant of Revelation the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And I think you have to say, in a way, it's a yes and no kind of thing. I don't know of any other group of people, any other Christian people, who are reading Revelation and seeing the things in Revelation that are there, seeing and understanding about the remnant. Yet at the same time, you could hardly say that the Adventist Church has the kind of impact that Revelation talks about for the remnant. So I think we all wanted to go back and study it some more. And uh, if we're not going to have the screen right now, I invite you to take Bibles in hand. And let's do a quick Bible study. And it may be a bit 
slow at first. You know, you may say, boy, we're covering a lot of texts. Where are we going? But I want you to know we're heading somewhere. We've discovered some things that I think will be extremely exciting as we move forward. First of all, God called Abraham. When you go back to the Old Testament, it all starts with Abraham. And God said to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis, he said to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations. In other words, when God called Abraham, God called him not for himself, not for the Jews, not for any particular ethnic group or tribe. He called Abraham for the world. He says, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. In other words, God has good things planned for all the nations of the world. And Abraham is going to be the source of those good things. If you study it carefully, you discover that God was trying to restore the Garden of Eden, to go back to what was lost. Through Abraham, what was lost would be restored. Now, Israel, Old Testament Israel, grabbed that calling of Abraham. And God even said to them, you'll be a kingdom of priests. But did Israel succeed in doing that? As you read through the Old Testament, you realize it did not happen. The identified and called people of God did not bring about the blessing to the nations that God had called for. And you can think of the time of Judges and all the mess that was going on there. Solomon's apostasy and Jeroboam and Ahab and Jezebel and Manasseh and captivity and on and on. The history of the Old Testament, frankly, was a history of failure and disgrace. But God was not ambushed. God had, if you wish, a plan B. And the plan B in the Old Testament is the remnant. In other words, if Israel itself would not be the means by which God would bless the nations, the blessing would still come to the nations, but in another way. And so let's take a look at some of these remnant texts in the Old Testament. First of all, Isaiah, no, excuse me, Second Chronicles, there's one that we don't look at that often. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 6. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 6. All right, Second Chronicles 30 verse 6. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. All right, this is a historical remnant. As God, you know, is approaches people here, he looks back and he says, okay, you came out from Assyria. I, there are some survivors. It was a real disaster. You went into exile. You were all hurting and stuff. But I brought you back. It's a group of people I brought back. You are the remnant. So fundamentally, the remnant is those who survive a disaster. But are these remnant faithful to God? What does the text say? Are they faithful to God, this remnant? No, they're not. He's calling them to return to him. So a historical remnant will be a group of people you can identify in history that God is working with, but it doesn't mean that they are necessarily perfect or that they are even faithful. Remnant, usually in the Old Testament, is kind of a mixed bag. There were some faithful people, some not-so-faithful people. So... You have historical remnants. At any point in the Old Testament, you could look back into the past 
and identify a remnant. Anyway, at any point, well, I'm gonna, let me tell you the big picture quick, and that'll save us some time. The remnant in the Old Testament is actually three different things. We always thought it was sort of one thing, but it's actually three different concepts of remnant in the Old Testament. One is historical. When you look back, you can see a remnant in history. Not necessarily faithful, but they're clearly a group of people that God has worked with. Secondly, the remnant, there's a faithful remnant, and that is a present tense. In the present tense, God has a remnant people who are faithful to him. They are tied to the historical remnant. So the historical remnant might be Noah from the time of the flood. It might be Israel coming out of Egypt. It might be uh, Israel coming out of Assyria and so forth. And, and so you look back, you see that historical remnant. But in the present tense, you have a faithful remnant. Some of the historical remnant has an idea of the identity, the mission, the, the DNA that God had wanted to place within that historical remnant. So there are some that have a clear idea of where God wanted that remnant to go. And then there's an end-time remnant, an eschatological remnant. At any point in the Old Testament, you look forward and God says, I have plans. I have big plans for a remnant down the line. And uh, I will work with them and I will work with you. All right, so... You have the historical remnant and uh, not necessarily faithful. Then you have the faithful remnant. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 10 and verses 20 and 21. Isaiah chapter 10 and verses 20 and 21. All right, Isaiah 10 verses 20 to 21. Thank you. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on the one who struck them but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So here's the good news. The good news is that at any stage of history, God sees potential in the remnant that was not visible at that time. Uh, perhaps the, most, the best example of a faithful remnant is that uh, Elijah's day. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah was running from Jezebel. And what did Elijah say? You know, Israel has abandoned you, God. I'm the only one that's left. All right, so Elijah is over there, and he says, you know, everybody, Elijah feels Israel has abandoned God, and he says, I'm the only one left. And what does God say to him? There's another 7,000, you see. So the faithful remnant is invisible. They are not uh, aware of each other even. There's Israelites by the millions, but the 7,000 faithful ones, even a prophet doesn't know the other 6,999 are there. So the invisible remnant, the faithful remnant are known to who? To God. So if you're going to run around saying, I know who the faithful remnant is, then you're smarter than Elijah. And that's not very likely, because Elijah had access to stuff I doubt you have, you see. So faithful remnant are those among the historical remnant that understand the mission of God, that are connected to God, that catch the DNA and are moving forward with God's plan. Historical remnant will have faithful and unfaithful mixed within them. All right, now future remnant, here's where it gets exciting. Isaiah 66 
Isaiah 66, verses 19 and 20. This text just blew my mind when I read it. Because Isaiah, as he looks forward, has a vision of the remnant also. But this is a remnant that goes beyond anything Isaiah had imagined. Isaiah 66, 19 to 20. And I'm going to skip a couple of things there, but you can follow. Isaiah 66, 19. I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Now that word survivors is another remnant word. You can translate it different ways. But it's a remnant word in the Hebrew. God in the future is going to have his faithful ones and he's going to send them to the nations. What nations? To the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And in, in, in your verse 19, there's a whole bunch of weird names in there that are places that are not neighbors to Israel. They are way out at the edges of the world. You know, Afghanistan, you know, places like that. Way out at the edge of the world. And Isaiah has this vision from God that one day the Israelites will not only be faithful, but they will go out to the ends of the earth to people who have never known God. And look what's going to happen. Verse 20. They shall bring all your brothers. That means sisters too here. Bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. God is saying there's family out there. I love the mission story this morning. He knows your name. He knew the names of those Hawaiians, even when they were worshiping the witch doctors. He knows your name. There are people out there who never heard of God. He knows your name. And he promised that the eschatological remnant will bring vast numbers of those kind of people back to Jerusalem in the Old Testament context. One more text, Isaiah chapter 19. And I think you'll begin to get the picture that for the Old Testament remnant, this end-time remnant is a big surprise. This end-time remnant is bigger, more international, more unexpected than anything Israel had in mind. Isaiah 19, 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Who are those guys? Egypt. And Assyria, they are the superpowers of the ancient world. They're the bad guys. They're the ones that have been abusing, enslaving, and hurting the people of God. I could tell you stories about the Assyrians that you would have great difficulty hanging on to breakfast. It is disgusting the ways that human beings can hurt other human beings. You've heard about torture? The Assyrians were way ahead of either Al-Qaeda or the CIA, way ahead. They knew what torture was all about. Unbelievable stuff. These are the people God's talking about here. Look what he says. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. You say, worship what? In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. What? What does your version say? A blessing on the earth. How was God going to bless the earth? Through Abraham, through Israel. And now he expands it. He expands it to Egypt and Assyria, the nasty neighbors of the ancient world. So, 
In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt, with Assyria. God has expanded. Did you, ever, did you know this text existed? Even in the New Testament, you're thinking of Israel as kind of the people of God. God intended to expand Israel to include the major superpowers of the Middle East in the ancient world as part of the blessing to the rest of the nations. That's a text I don't understand. It goes beyond my imagining. Verse 25, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, Israel, my inheritance. So God had incredible plans for the future. In the Old Testament, the end-time remnant is always bigger, always unexpected. Now, who is the historical remnant for Isaiah? Of course, the Israel that came out of Egypt. Were they all faithful people? No, mixed bag. Who were the faithful remnant of Isaiah's day? Those in Babylon, the exiles who hung on to the scriptures, who hung on to their God, who were faithful to the DNA, the, the hope of blessing the nations. Those few, perhaps, were the faithful remnant there. Eschatological remnant was something future from Isaiah's day. And let me just ask you the question. Do you think Isaiah fully understood the church? I don't think so. If you could bring Isaiah into the ancient Mediterranean world and see the church being made up of people of every nation, tribe, and language all over the Roman Empire, Isaiah would have said, wow, I didn't see that coming. Take him down to our day and look at two billion people who named the name of Jesus in every nations he never heard of. United States of America, hello. You see, Isaiah would have been blown away. He says, I knew it was big, but that was bigger than I thought. It's amazing what God had in store. And even the prophet would have to say, this is turning out bigger, more international, more unpredictable than I would have thought. Romans 11. Let's bring it to the New Testament, because this is the piece that Adventist scholars have not attained before, was to apply this threefold remnant. A teacher of mine, Gerhard Hasel, uh, wrote that up in an encyclopedia about 25 years ago, but nobody really noticed. And then recently, as we've been studying, we began applying that to the New Testament. Here's what we found in Romans 11. Paul's saying, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What's Paul talking about? It's the historical remnant, right? He's talking about Old Testament Israel, the Jewish people. He says, we Jews are here. I'm one of them. I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. We're called to bless the nations. That's the historical remnant. Were all the Jews faithful to God? No, and I don't think any Jew would tell you that. You see? So Paul is saying, is God rejecting the Jews? No, no, no. He says, don't you know what Scripture says about Elijah? And he tells the whole story of Elijah. How Elijah thought he was the only one, and God said there's 7,000. Verse 5, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. What was that? The faithful remnant of Paul's day, like Elijah's remnant, was a faithful, invisible remnant of everybody who had given their hearts to Jesus. So Paul, in his day, has a faithful remnant. Then you go to the end of Romans 11, 
and the eschatological remnants down at the end of time. And once again, let's bring Paul to today and tell him there's two billion people in the world through hundreds of nations you never heard of all who named the name of Jesus. What would Paul have said? I didn't see it coming. Wow. Eschatological remnant. That's bigger than anything I imagined. So for Paul, he's got a historical remnant. And that's the uh, work of God in Israel up to his day. The faithful remnant are those who follow Jesus among the Jews. You see, the faithful remnant is always tied to the historical remnant. So it's a number among the Jews who are faithful to God. Eschatological remnant, of course, for Paul, he already saw, would be much, much bigger. It would include the Gentiles and beyond. The end-time remnant, bigger, more international, unpredictable. And then we come to Revelation, because the remnant story doesn't end in the first century. But John projects that at the end of time, there'll be a remnant. Now, here's the exciting concept. Adventists have always connected with this remnant idea. But here's the decisive additional piece that we've come to, the Biblical Research Committee. And that is that threefold remnant exists today, too. At any point in biblical history... You'd see three remnants by looking back, looking forward, and looking within. The same would be true today. The remnant of Revelation would be a threefold remnant. And as we look back today and we'd say, who is the historical remnant? Of course, you would go back to the Christian church. It goes all the way back from the first century, working its way through the centuries. Many unfaithful, many faithful but working its way to today. As we look at the book of Revelation, we realize there's a historical remnant also in the 19th century. And particularly focused in the 19th century was a people who identified with the book of Revelation, identified with the values that were going on there, and identified with the time. Revelation teaches us that in the last days of earth's history, after the close of Daniel's time prophecies, there would be a people and a message. And that people, I believe, are the historic Adventist movement, the Millerite movement and leading up to today. There are a people in the world that have identified the key issues of revelation. Who would the faithful remnant be today? I would argue on the analogy of Scripture that it would be the faithful ones among the historical remnant. In other words, among the Adventists, there are some, hopefully many, who have a clear sense of the identity, the mission, the role, the DNA of what God intended for the remnant. Simply to be an Adventist is not to be remnant in that sense. Because remnant means grasping what this is all about and uh, working with God. But if there's still a future remnant, should we not expect that it's bigger, more international, unpredictable, should not we also be surprised like every other remnant has been? Revelation 14, 6. Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. The end-time remnant is going to be vast. And dare I say, religion. The eschatological remnant has always been a surprise. Why would we think we've already done it? 
oh yeah, we're in 208 countries, you know, we got three people in Afghanistan, and we, you know, we're everywhere, you know. Well, that's true in a sense, but why would we stop there? Why would we not recognize that at every stage of biblical history, the future remnant has always been a surprise, even to the prophets? And I know you'd like to say, well, what kind of a surprise? How big a surprise? Is there any hints, any, anything we could see looking forward? Well, here's where I'm going to go a step beyond the Biblical Research Committee. Because I'm going to suggest to you that God has a plan, that it's a clear plan, it's a shocking plan, and it'll stretch the boundaries of anything we've imagined before. There are three religions in the world today that go back to Abraham, three religions that believe that they will be used for that promise of blessing all the nations, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Traditionally, when we look at other religions, we compare the best of what we have to offer with the worst of what they have to offer. And it's always easy to look good when you do that. But they can do that too. And some people want to talk about Seventh-day Adventists, talk about David Koresh, and a few other things we don't want mentioned around here. You know, see, we all have warts. We all have our dark side. But when I thought, let me look at these three great monotheistic faiths and look at it through their eyes. What is the core value they believe God has placed in their hands and in their hearts? And when you look at Christianity, you could say, what are the core values that Jews and Muslims tend to reject but are close to the heart of Christians? I can think of three. Gospel, grace, and Jesus. Those are three huge emphases. And if you've been coming to Calamasa Church for long, you'll realize those are the key emphases of this church. Gospel, grace, Jesus, a God who loves us. Not a stern God, not a judgmental God. You see, those are values that Christianity holds over against the other two. But let's go to the Jewish side. Are there some values that they feel God has placed in their hearts that Christians and Muslims tend to reject? I think of law. I think of obedience. I think of Sabbath. And I realize, you know, Jew, Christians and Muslims tend to hold back on those things, especially Sabbath. You see. But then let's go to the Muslims. Do the Muslims have some core values? And I'd love sometime a chance to share with you some of the incredible core values of Islam. You know, we think of it as some kind of thinly veiled paganism, but actually at the heart of Islam, is a very spiritual faith that, that cares deeply about relationship with God. And at some of those levels, you'd be surprised at how much they connect with Adventist thought. The three great core values of Islam that Christians and Jews tend to reject are submission, the word Islam means that, radical submission, eschatology, judgment. Islam's all about the day of judgment. Looking at your life today in the light of the judgment. Have you noticed anything? If you look carefully at those core values of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and I wish I could show them on the screen. It would be a little bit easier to hang on to. But when I look at the core values of those three faiths, I see the remnant of Revelation. In other words, God has placed, if you study Revelation, you have an emphasis on the Sabbath, you have an emphasis on the judgment, an emphasis on the end of time, an emphasis on Jesus and grace and gospel. 
All the things that are at the center of the core values of the three great monotheistic faiths are all found in the message of Revelation, in the end time message of the remnant. I believe that God has placed in the DNA that Seventh-day Adventists subscribe to, the DNA of Revelation's remnant, handles that connect with the spiritual best of every faith. A friend of mine, Job Diddal, a missionary, has been in many different countries. He's read many books. He studied it. Uh, he's a doctor of missiology and Old Testament. And Dibdal says, in every country I've worked, Adventism is closer to the indigenous religion than it is to Christians in that same place. In other words, it seems that some of our quirky little things, you know, Adventists can be a strange people. But we can be strange in every place, and yet we're at home in every place. Because every people has something in their spiritual value that Adventists can relate to. And let me just share with you one example. Let's take the Middle East. You go to the Middle East and you say, okay, what's the dividing line between Christians and Muslims? And here's six points that Christians and Muslims would agree on. Divide them. They may be trivial to us, but they are central to how Christians and Muslim Arabs relate to each other. Number one is alcohol. If you go into an Arab market and are selling alcohol, what do you know? It's a Christian market. If they're not selling alcohol, it's a Muslim market. If you go into a travel agency and the women are dressed like a fashion magazine, what do you know? It's a Christian or a Jewish Travel agency. If the women are dressed more modestly, it's a Muslim travel agency. Now, where do Adventists fit in the Middle East? If a Muslim wants to prove to family and friends that he or she has converted to Christianity, you know what, you know what the procedure is? You sit down in front of your family, you drink a glass of wine and eat a piece of pork, and now they know that you're a Christian. And they'll know you're a Christian. Yeah, we don't want to go there. Are you getting my point? That in the Muslim world, Adventists have been so constituted by God that at the core issues for the Muslim, we do not offend. Muslims can relate to Adventists as spiritual cousins, if you will. I didn't know this before September 11. I didn't know this five years ago. It's blown my mind to realize some of the significant connections that Muslims see when they relate to Adventists. I never knew a Muslim in the Middle East one hour before he didn't stop and say, are you an American? Yeah. Then how come you're not a Christian? And I used to get offended at that. You know, I, I said, yeah, I am Christian. And now I began to realize Adventists do not come across as Christian in the negative sense. You ask a Muslim about the Pope, are they excited about it? Not very. You ask a Christian Arab in the Middle East, the Pope's the man. You ask a Muslim in the Middle East about the United States, not too popular right now. You ask a Muslim what is their greatest fear for the future, and they would say an alliance between the Pope and the President of the United States. Now where do Adventists fit in a worldview like that? I believe that God designed ahead of time a remnant who would have 
the faith that was needed for the end of time. Why? Because God placed in the hearts of every people, Acts says, he is never without witness among any people, even the pagan Hawaiians. God placed within that culture echoes of himself, pieces of his DNA. And every people, when they come to the end time remnant, will discern in the end time remnant something that their own heart resonates to. The end time remnant will be much more than an institution. It'll be much more than buildings and mortars. In fact, all of that may be swept away by then. The eschatological remnant will be kindred spirits who know God finding each other and finding a common faith that God had set 2,000 years ago in the pages of Scripture. As was said in the mission story, he knows your name. There's no person on this earth of any faith background who does not, is not known by God, whose spirit has not touched that person. Many have not responded to the spirit, but those who do, even within their context, are known by God and are being drawn by God to be part of his end-time remnant. The day will come when an end-time remnant of kindred spirits will more and more find each other and will then become, you know, Ellen White has this amazing statement, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, that's kind of a scary one because none of us feels very perfect, right? And yet the statement actually is plural, in his people, it's a collective, that there will be a people of God who will illustrate the character of Christ in their love for each other, in their willingness to overlook barriers of dress, barriers of race, barriers of culture, and to find your brothers and sisters in the far-flung coastlands of the earth. To me, the remnant message is not an exclusive message. It's not a message of, of people looking down on everybody else. Rather, it's an exciting message of saying, God's best is yet to come. God's vision for this people here in Calamasa, the best is yet to come. The day is going to come where we're going to say, I didn't see that coming. Now, maybe I don't have it all straight. I was just projecting into the future, and I'm not a prophet. But that glimpse that I gave you of what God could do with Jews and Muslims, just as an example, tells me that when it comes, we're going to stand in awe of what a God we serve. Amen. Amen, church. So be dismissed now by a king who is grander and who is more unpredictable than what we have even imagined. Be dismissed by this, uh, this king who also knows your name, who guarantees to live with and stay with the peoples of the earth until we meet face to face. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.